if you were to summarize this election season in one minute or less, how would you describe it? Train wreck. I would describe it as a train wreck. Welcome to Episode 5 of Current Events at Ledoux Horton Watkins High School. I am your teacher host, Kelly Cranick, and this week we are talking about a train wreck. Or maybe a watershed moment? Or maybe just what a great time it is to be a student taking current events. Honestly, I'm not really sure. So we're going to talk. And by talk, I mean listen. We are going to listen to a lot of different people and consider what they have to say because they're talking about everyone's favorite thing not to talk about. Politics. This is a really great time to be taking current events, isn't it? Yeah, it is, right? There's a lot of things to talk about. Yes. Yeah. So here we are. It's the last week of September, and on November 3rd, the United States will hold a presidential election. And not just any old presidential election. In the words of our AP government teacher, Mr. Snidman, this election is unlike any other. I would describe it as a train wreck. Um, Seriously, uh, with the whole virus thing, it's just complicated this election season so much. And then we have a, a president who said if uh, he doesn't win, he's not going to give up power peacefully. This is the first president in history to do that. We have uh, six weeks out from the presidential election. We have a Supreme Court justice who died. And the president is hustling to replace her, even though the Senate Majority Leader had said that if somebody needs to be replaced from the Supreme Court in an election year, it's not going to happen, except it should have been it's not going to happen if the president's a Democrat. So we see just horrific hypocrisy by our leaders. So all these things thrown together, this is a mess, plus the the slowdown, the intentional slowdown of our postal system. No one's ever seen anything like that before. So there's a lot of strange elements. Plus, we have um, Russian interference. They've been manipulating social media to Uh, convince people of uh, false facts. Speaking of pluses, plus, this week kicks off the debates. On Tuesday, September 29th, Joe Biden and Donald Trump will go face mask to face in Cleveland, Ohio, in the first of three televised political discussions where moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News will ask each candidate a series of questions about their respective platforms. It's meaningful to note that debates traditionally take place on college campuses. You may recall that our own Washington University in St. Louis has hosted debates five times, including one between Trump and Clinton four years ago. But because of the coronavirus pandemic and outbreaks spiking at most college campuses, the schedule has been changed many times this election season. In fact, Notre Dame was the original host of the first debate, but it withdrew because of COVID-19. Which is also interesting to note because Amy Coney Barrett, the person who Trump has nominated to replace the very recently deceased Justice Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, happens to be a law professor at Notre Dame. So there's also that going on. I I guess I'm just, I'm starting to see what Mr. Stidman is getting at. So this presidential election is fraught with controversy and complications, but is that really anything unprecedented? Unprecedented, by the way, means never happened or done before. It's a little bit of an annoying word to use because it sounds a lot like president, but that's just a coincidence, I think. 
Anyway, my next guest is going to look at the present. Ugh, precedent, president, present. Say that three times fast. President, president, present. Yeah, so looking at the present through a more historical lens. Hi, everybody. I am Miss Keltner, and I teach social studies here at the high school. I teach um, world history and geography to freshmen, and I also teach AP US history to juniors and seniors. This is my fourth year working at Ladue. If I was going to summarize the election in a minute or less, um, I would describe this election as very contentious and probably a, a watershed moment in history eventually when we look back on it. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, I think that this is a real turning point for both political parties and whoever gets the majority of votes, po the popular vote, I think it'll be clear to whoever loses that there needs to be a real change in the dynamic of the party and the foundations of the party and, and what the party stands for. So I think that there's a lot of on the line for both Democrats and Republicans. And obviously uh, contentious because of everything that's surrounding the election, um, the protests that we've seen due to the Black Lives Matter movement and the pushback to that movement that some have, I think all of that surrounding this is, is only making the stakes even higher. Ah, a watershed moment. Yes, I know a lot of people have shed water over this election, and the last one for that matter, hence it being contentious. But watershed doesn't mean crying tears, it means a turning point. Ms. Keltner is claiming that this election will likely change politics in the United States by forcing the losing party to reevaluate and in many ways potentially reinvent itself if it wants to survive. Now, what about the past? This is 2020 after all, so that has to count for something? Like maybe our hindsight can help us learn from history? Um, so what do you think we can learn from the most recent election? First, I think we can take away the knowledge and acceptance that we did have foreign interference in the 2016 election. Yay! We will have foreign interference in the 2020 election. There is no question about that, uh, and that's not a partisan statement. It has been proven that Russia did interfere in the 2016 election, and they are right now at this very moment trying to interfere in the 2020 election. So I think um, we take that into account and we do the best we can with what we have. Um, I am no genius or expert when it comes to uh, – technology to figure something like that out. But what I do know is, is what we can do as citizens to try to combat that is, is to make sure that we are literate when it comes to news and consuming information. And so I think uh, I know that Ms. Cranick spends a lot of time in current events talking about the importance of that. And um, it's just, it seems like it's, it's, there's more of an emphasis on being able to critically consume news and other information with every single election. Yep, Ms. Keltner, I could not agree more. So students, let's just go over a few of the finer points of news savvy that we've covered in this class so far. First, 
the challenge of information overload and sifting through a ton of information to find what's meaningful and trustworthy, along with the ability to recognize journalism, aka facts, not commentary when we see it. And next we have the task of taking time to actually read and listen to information in its entirety so we get the full story, appreciate the humans behind the headlines, and respect the limits of the news as we're constantly updating provisional truth based on new findings. We also know we need to corroborate claims and other trustworthy and independent sources to verify the credibility of information that is covered. And obviously, each week, a new layer of what it takes to be news savvy is added to our literacy superpowers. And this week, it's about how to keep an open mind when it's all about making up your mind. It's tough, especially when there's so much at stake. But we can do it. So take that, election saboteurs. So if all we want are the facts, and I'm going to say the facts, not the opinions, then what resources can we turn to? Well, we do actually have some very credible, balanced sources for the news out there. And when I ask people where they go to get the best journalism they can find, here is what they all, and I mean all of them, had to say. Well, of course, uh, the news is a good place to start, but you go online. You go to the New York Times to find uh, helpful information. So like I value the New York Times. I find them to be like the number one source. If I need information quickly and I want to check something really fast, I think that they're the number one trusted source in America. So I will go there and I will read whatever they have to say, um, provided that it's a news piece and not an opinion piece because they are biased in their opinion pieces. Most publications are. New York Times, you know, because that we had that um, uh, at the high school and oh, and in case you were wondering, the New York Times is actually not a sponsor of my podcast. Um, however, we actually give money to them, and by we I mean the school gives money to the New York Times on your behalf, so you have a subscription for them. I also just threw in two new voices after Mr. Snibbins. The first was Mrs. Kirksey, and she teaches journalism at the high school. And the last voice you heard is of Mary Kate Mortland. She is one of the librarians at Ledoux, along with Ms. Michelle Schmidt. These three experts in research echoed advice we've heard from other guests in previous episodes. That is, seek information from many sources across various media, especially information that is written down. In addition, when it comes to politics, there are a few reliable sources you can turn to for help in learning about candidates and their platforms. For voting, there's two websites that I've been using for a really long time that are quite good. There is Project Vote Smart, where they compare uh, politicians and issues that volunteers work on tracking this stuff down, nonpartisan volunteers. And then there is uh, Vote. 411.org, where you could actually type in your address and up will come a copy of your ballot for your next election with uh, links that will take you to information about the issues on the ballot. We both agreed, like the first thing that came to our mind was the League of Women Voters. Um, that's kind of usually where I go uh, when I am looking to read about candidates. Um, you know, inside of our jurisdiction and for whether it's national or local um, or state, um, that's kind of my go-to source. I, I actually should probably say I look at more places, but I 
don't typically. Oh, League of Women Voters does a nice job of, we were talking about bias. I think they try very much to be unbiased. And I love that they talk actually to the candidates or contact the candidates. And so you get a lot of, again, that primary source, firsthand information from them. That's why I, I think they're a great source. And I think they make it a point to give you as much perspective from all sides as they possibly can. So that's a very helpful start. And if you're concerned about bias, you should be. But for the sake of time, I've decided to save that topic for next week's episode because it's such a big and important one. And speaking of bias and just trying to get past that, what about numbers? Numbers don't lie, right? So maybe we can check out the polls? They are another way to get some insight into the elections, but remember the polls back in 2016 and how they said, hands down, Hillary Clinton is going to beat Donald Trump. Well, we all know how that turned out. Back to Ms. Keltner. I think we can also take away from the 2016 election that, um, you know, everybody wants to talk about the polls, right? Everybody wants to say, well, the polls were wrong in 2016 or, or you know, the polls were right in 2016. And what do the polls look like today? And, you know, I think there's a few things to keep in mind. You should never rely on polls because um, it's not a... It, it's not a true reflection of society, right? Because there's a lot of limitations to polls. But also, if you do look at the 2016 polls, you you see that um, something was right, and that was that Hillary Clinton did, in fact, win the popular vote by over 2 million votes, which is what the polls called for. She just didn't win the Electoral College. She just didn't win the Electoral College. Exactly. So what the heck? Why pay attention to the polls? What do they even mean anyway? Ugh, to help us answer that question... I sought some help from our AP Calc and statistics teacher, Mr. Farrell. Um, polls are exactly that. They just predict. Uh, they are not definitive, like an equation says this is the answer. A poll just says what might be happening or what could happen. There's always an amount of error involved. Whenever you see polls being posted on TV, you always see a margin of error that, you know, 47% of people approve of X, Y, and Z. And then there's a margin of error of plus or minus three percent, four percent. So that gives you a range of values where the true uh, proportion of people approving that message could be located. Um, so we call that a margin of error. And then we go further to create uh, in statistics what we call a confidence interval. And then we even have, go even further in statistics to create different levels of confidence at 90%, 95, and 99. So what that goes to show you is that uh, data can be easily misconstrued or manipulated in ways that are not ethical um, or to uh, fashion whatever message uh, that you are trying to get across. Um, so the point of polls is to be a, uh, a thermometer. Uh, we want to take a temperature. Um, we just want to know what's happening at that moment. Um, they're not meant to be a thermostat. They should never tell you who or what you should vote for that has to come down to the actual question and the topic and the idea and what your beliefs are. Um, they can be helpful in helping others decide, like for example, if I'm a politician, I would like to know how is my message getting across to certain groups of people and where do I need to make changes? That's who the polls help. Um, but as an individual voter, um, the, the polls are not intended and should not be used to guide your thinking. That is up to you and your research.
exactly who or what to vote for is up to you and your research. So, what do you know about the candidates and their respective platforms? By the way, did you know we are also voting for governor in Missouri? Yeah, so you have two big elections on our ballots, which means we need to find even more information. And, okay, I know you want to know anyway, so don't tell anyone. What are the polls saying right now about Trump and Biden? Well, the average of the polls as of September 20... What's today's date? 8th. I wanted to make this very current. As of September 28th, state that currently Biden is ahead by 7 to 8 points, whereas Hillary Clinton was ahead by 2 points back in 2016. But remember, that should not inform your actions at all. The only people who really should be using that information are the what? That's right, the politicians. Okay, back to you in informing your vote. As far as the other issues, you could just Google them. You Google the name of the person and you could go to their website. Of course, the candidate's website will be totally biased because they want to promote that candidate, but it does give you a really good starting point and you might find something that the candidate is proud of that you find rather offensive. So it's a really good place to start. Uh, then you read their opponent's website. That's uh, helpful too. And yeah. I'm a U.S. history buff. I always like to go back to the election of 1800, and I also like to go back to the election of 1828. I know that we all know, or I'm sorry, yeah, the election of 1828 and 24. Oh, there's so many good ones. And I know we all know how they ended up. Uh, <laughs> well, uh... Or maybe you don't, so I'll fill you in. The election of 1800 was very contentious. It's the first time in American history where a new political party takes power from an old political party. So in the election of 1800, John Adams, who was the incumbent, the Federalist, lost to the Democratic Republican Thomas Jefferson. And that election was very heated. And I believe one of the candidates was called a puppy. And at the time, that was one of the worst insults that you could say to someone. For us today, that sounds uh, pretty ridiculous to call someone a puppy. But for back then, it was it was extremely offensive. A puppy? What? Nah. Go ahead. Use that as a sign to take a break and hang out with your dog for a second. Right, buddy? I don't know why anyone would use puppy as an insult. Good boy. So there were things being thrown around in the press. There were, you know, rumors being thrown around about each candidate, like we see today. I mean, politics can be a nasty business. And if we don't have historical perspective, we believe that this is this is the worst election in history, that, you know, people are really going below the belt and, and trying to say mean and bad things to each other. But this has been happening throughout history. So the election of 1824, then, is sometimes called the corrupt bargain of 1824. And that was because the election was actually not decided by the Electoral College because there was a tie. So when that happens, still today, the election then goes to the House of Representatives and, and the representatives have to cast votes to decide who wins the presidency. And there were four candidates. It ended up coming down to John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Um, Henry Clay was another guy who was mixed in there. Um, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, and that John Quincy Adams told Henry Clay that he could be the These contentious elections are nothing, nothing new in American history. Okay, 
So we can all agree, or just trust Ms. Keltner. Sorry, I fast-forwarded through the 1824 election story. Um, spoiler alert, everyone. Henry Clay never becomes president, ever. Um, so anyway, sorry again, Ms. Keltner. It was really interesting. Um, yes, so we can all agree that some elections are more contentious than others, and this one is no exception. What is exceptional is the aspect of voting itself. This year we have a pandemic, which means voting in person involves more risk than usual. To minimize that risk, states, which run elections, have opted to provide people with mail-in or absentee ballots. This has been available to voters in previous elections, but never to the scale that we see for this one. Furthermore, as Mr. Stinman reminded us earlier, the sitting president, the incumbent, Donald Trump, has taken steps to raise doubt regarding the mail-in process. Well, I applied for an absentee ballot as soon as they were available, and it came in the mail today. And I am going to fill it out tonight, and I am going to take it to the post office tomorrow. So tomorrow will make it 38 days before the election. And I hope, for goodness sake, that if I take it to the mailbox, to the post office, uh, and mail it across town to the Board of Elections, it will get there in less than 38 days. However, I know people who are really scared that their vote's not going to count. And so they're risking their lives and going to vote in person. I don't think, since I got my ballot and I have 38 days, I don't think I need to do that. But I know people who are just afraid because President Trump had made a commitment to slowing the mail because he recognizes that um, Democrats recognize the danger of the virus, whereas many Republicans don't. And so Democrats are more likely to use the mail uh, to uh, send in their ballot. And he's made it, he was very open about it. And I do appreciate that, that he uh, has directed the postmaster to slow the mail, disrupt the uh, mail and ballots. I appreciate transparency too, Mr. Snidman. So just to summarize, there is the assumption that more Democrats will vote by mail for Biden. And if Trump wants to be reelected, he doesn't want those votes for Biden to be counted. You and I all know that our voting deadline is November 3rd. So if people place their ballots in the mail prior to November 3rd, but the mail takes too long to arrive in time, that means those votes will miss the deadline and not be counted. In theory, that means Biden will get fewer votes, which should help Donald Trump out. If that sounds shady, well, that's your opinion. But we're here for the facts, and we at least have these facts to inform our actions. First, we know that the mail is running much, much slower than usual, and the deadline for our vote to count is November 3rd. So if you prefer to vote by mail rather than in person, you should act accordingly and get your ballot in the mail sooner than later. Well... Uh, I'll tell you, um, in the election in August, um, a family member of ours um, sent in their ballot 10 days before the election, which normally would have been fine. It would have gone from the mailbox to the post office. But since the mail slowing procedure is already in play in August, um, this family member, her ballot didn't get counted 10 days in advance um, to mail a, a letter across town. For most of my life, it took no more than three days. So please be aware the mail is, is incredibly slow. I'd say if, it's, if you have less than two weeks to get your absentee ballot in, 
just take it down to the Board of Elections, risk your life, and, and turn it in, because it's really important. But is it? I mean, really. We're in Missouri, or Missouri, whatever you want to say. Our state doesn't seem to be too important, and um, remember the last election? More people voted for Clinton, and she still lost the Electoral College. You know, every state is significant. Every electoral vote matters. I think that past elections show that. They can be very close. Ultimately, though, Missouri is a smaller state, and only 10 electoral votes are up for college, up for grabs. Electoral votes are up for grabs for Missouri. And so it's not a huge number, but those 10 can, can really make a big difference. And Missouri is a winner-take-all state. So whatever candidate wins the popular vote of Missouri will take all 10 electoral votes. And uh, any candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win. So bigger states that might be more important to pay attention to, um, you know, we know the way California is going to go. California is going to be a blue state. They're going to vote democratically because of all of the big cities that they have. Um, that, that won't be a question. One to really look for is going to be Florida. A lot of times Florida is a, is a swing state and can go either way. In 2016, Florida went for Donald Trump and the Republicans. Um, but a lot of money is being spent by Democrats down in Florida, and, and people are are really questioning um, if it could turn blue this election. I would also say a, a, a collection of states called the Rust Belt, um, which would include like Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. These are all states that are very important for, for this election. And they were states that were pretty much ignored by the Democratic Party in 2016 because they thought they had it you know, wrapped up. Um, and it turns out that they didn't, that Donald Trump won Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and, uh, what did I say? Michigan? Yeah, Michigan. So the combination of those three states' electoral votes made a huge difference. So, um, you may have noticed in the news that Joe Biden and Democrats are, are spending a lot of time in the Rust Belt and uh, a lot of money is being spent there. So, so those are things to pay attention to. Okay, so maybe Missouri still matters, but what about me and what I think? And what if all this mailing and risking catching COVID is just, it's just too much? What I will say to you is absolutely 100% unequivocally, your vote does matter. And I'm going to give you a really simple reason why. If there are, let's see, mm, how many eligible voters are there in the United States? Hold on, let me do a quick Google search of this. This is not as easy of, as a figure as I thought it would be to Google. Um, it's over 100 million. I, I think it's probably over 150 million. Um, Real quick, just so you feel better, Ms. Keltner, I, too, am struggling to find the total number of eligible voters in the United States. I'm wondering if that statistic is missing because we're still registering people, and probably we just, because it's from state to state, this is not a federal process by which we gather these numbers. So, um, yeah, I'm not 100% certain either. It's going to take some digging. But there, the point is there are hundreds of millions of people registered to vote in this country who are eligible to vote. And 
if all of those people collectively just decided that this doesn't matter, that my vote's not going to count, whatever, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the route that, that I don't have to contribute to this and it's not going to affect me. If everybody did that, then where would we be, right? So your vote absolutely does matter. Plus, remember the president is not the only choice on the ballot this November. We also have to make a decision for governor. Do we want Mike Parson, who was diagnosed with COVID-19 last week, by the way, or Nicole Galloway, who would end up being the first female governor of Missouri? And with all that is going on in the news about the Supreme Court, remember that our country has an extensive judicial system that includes justices in our own state and counties who are up for review. But I'll tell you something else. My ballot came today, and half the ballot are just simply voting whether we want to keep these state judges in office or not. It's called retention or non-retention. That's a Missouri thing. Of course, we don't vote on federal judges. And to find out their backgrounds and whether you should vote to retain them or not, it's actually relatively easy. I just Googled Missouri Bar Organization, and then on their homepage came a, uh, there was a box for reviews of judges. And you just click on it and it tells you if the judge has been considered to be meeting expectations by the Missouri Bar Association or not. All the judges on my ballot, there were 14 of them, meet expectations. But a couple of them I was curious so you could click and actually dig into the reviews of these judges and it was kind of fun because one of the judges is actually a friend of mine and I I dug into his reviews and they were quite good. Um, I was telling some of our other friends that uh, his reviews were actually significantly better than the justice on the Missouri Supreme Court who's up for retention. Her reviews were all right, but our friend was much better. In case you didn't know it, by the way, Mr. Snidman was an attorney for many years, so he has all the connections. But some of you are probably also thinking, I can't vote. I'm not 18 yet. I get it, but I can't vote. So does any of this matter for me? Well, of course it does. And you all still can make a difference. Do you remember Mr. Goble, our broadcast journalism teacher who contributed to Episode 3? Here he is again supporting my point. Students will say, well, this doesn't affect me. Well, we have seniors who it does because they're going to be involved in a major presidential election in the fall. And if there are sophomores, then in two years, they'll be involved in a, uh, another election. The midterms is what they're called. And, and whether they know that or not, whether they have, understand the power of the voting, um, they, have to look at, they have to understand that decisions that will be made this year will impact them as adults because many policies take five, eight, 10 years to take uh, true effect. And that's our group right now in high school will be adults in the business world by then. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it does behoove them at least to show some interest in it. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to dismiss it. It certainly is. And it's very easy to just say, well, I'm only gonna read the headline. But I think you kind of owe it to yourself to, um, to be a, a, a true citizen, uh, to, to take some time and to try to decipher through the minutia of it all. Well, of course, what you think matters. Uh, I've had students I've been writing letters of recommendation for who spent their summer uh, calling people for various candidates. And they obviously support these particular candidates. And so they were able to talk to people on the phone and explain why they should vote for these candidates. So it does matter. I've spent a lot of time 
in my four years at Ladue so far convincing teenagers that their votes do matter. And one of the, the greatest days of my career thus far has been when I had a, a former student who I sparred with all throughout government class who um, told me on the first day of class that, that he thought his vote didn't matter and he wasn't going to vote in any elections. And I got an email from him just a few months ago when um, there was the local election in August, and he sent me a picture of him at, the, at his polling place with his voting sticker, and he said in the subject line of the email, you were right. And I'm looking at that picture right now. I'm, I'm looking at my bulletin board. I have a voting wall of fame where students can take a picture of themselves the first time they vote. And it honestly, it makes me a little choked up because it, it shows that, that, that what we do matters, right? What we teach matters, what we learn matters. And, and so that we can be informed enough to make our voices heard. And the fact that, that we had, and we've had students, and I know I'll have a lot of them in the future who, who maybe thought that their vote didn't matter. And then they really came to see that, that it does and that they get excited about voting and the prospect of voting is, is really cool. It is really cool, but honestly, it's also a responsibility. I mean, no one is mandated to vote in this country. Voting in and of itself is a choice, and honestly, one that some people don't always get but deserve. And what you do when you vote is make choices. So it's literally a choice about choices. And everything we're doing in this class is about getting current information to help us make better choices ones that we are confident in and feel like we have made according to facts so we can stand by our opinions. So I hope this episode has helped you understand some of the dynamics of this election, know where to go to inform yourself, and also provided you with the encouragement to do so, so you actually follow through by voting or supporting the voting process. And next, comes digesting all this information, and that requires the part that becomes uncomfortable for many people, talking about it. Since that is such a charged topic, we will continue that conversation next episode, where we will take a closer look at bias and balance, and how to get insight from others to help us know what to think and do with all the facts that we find. Until then, thanks for listening, thanks to all who contributed, and just, you know, don't be a puppy. Instead, be savvy. I had a great time answering these questions and I hope that they help you file through some of the things going on in our world right now in our society and um, we look forward to when you all can vote. If you can vote now, that's wonderful. Um, if, I don't, if I've never had you in class, if I've never met you, I'd love still to have you on my voting wall of fame. So if you're going to vote on November 3rd and uh, you take a picture of yourself, go ahead and email it to me and I'll put it on my voting wall of fame and you can see it when we get back to school. So I uh, hope everybody's learning over the virtual platform is going well so far. And uh, thanks for thinking of me and having me on today. recording anymore okay it's it's recording but i'll just leave the meeting it doesn't matter because you'll just cut it off yep bye (laughs) i don't know miss cranick you're gonna have to maybe edit some of that out i thought that would be something easy to find i always like giving my opinion
Oh, boy.